And James chapter 4, uh, verses 13 through 17 is where we're going to focus our time together this morning. Now, if you've been with us through this study of the book of James, James is the brother of Jesus. Uh, he, is, he is one who saw and heard uh, what Jesus did. And then he wrote this letter to a group of people, a group of believers who were scattered, who were persecuted, who go, went through some very difficult times. And in this, in this book, it, it's been a very interesting letter because James didn't take the approach that, that I think most of us would, and that is, it's not a letter that's basically saying, oh, how, how, how pitiful that is that you're hurting. How, how sad that is that you're going through difficulties. Let me just hug you in the name of Jesus. James kind of took the reverse course and said, you know what, this is real life. And because it's real life, you're going to learn really where your foundations are. Because when your foundations are in Christ, guess what? When the storms and the winds and the waves and those types of things come, you will stand if you base your life in Christ. And this is what this section that we're going to read today really is all about. Because it's him giving us a very tangible example of what it is to build our life on the wisdom that is from above. And not the wisdom of this earth. The wisdom of this earth we studied a few weeks ago is, is, is selfish, it's sensual, it's, it's inspired by the demonic because it's all about us versus the wisdom from God, it's all about him and his wisdom, his gentleness, his peace, the things we need in our lives. In fact, this word we're going to read this morning talks about the fact that true wisdom is really built on this foundation of humility. Now, I'm thinking again, James, again, knows the, the teachings of his brother Jesus. He saw them, he heard them. And I'm thinking of the, of the picture that, that Jesus gave us in Matthew 7, where he talked about that you can build your house on the rock, or you can build your house on the sand. Your choice. But when the winds come and the storms come, only one house is standing, and that's the storm, that, the house that's built on the rock. And so in this case, he's saying it's built on humility as opposed to the false wisdom that's built on a foundation of arrogance. And here's how he puts it in this word picture today. He says this in verse 13. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this city or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes, and all such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. So here's James, speaking to this group of people that have been persecuted, they're going through difficult times, they've been relocated, all of this. And he's saying, you need to understand the difference between humility and pride. The difference between understanding that God has your life or you think you're in control. Really the difference between pride and humility, arrogance and humility. So in this text, what he does is he really kind of sets us up for this comparison that we all know we're going to lose from the very beginning. Because what he's doing is he's setting up this comparison between us and God to show us that, guess what, we're not God, amen? And he does it in such a way that I think brings some profound understanding of how we live our lives. So I want us to kind of break it down this morning, and then I want us to do a little bit of a test that he proposes for us in here of how to see where our foundation is. Because the first thing James shares, okay, the very first thing he brings out in this, in this simple two or three verses, four verses here in James chapter 4 is this. He says, listen, you need to understand, you do not know what you do not know. Now, I know that's profound wisdom right there. But he's saying, basically, you and I lack knowledge about a lot of things. We lack knowledge about a lot of things. He does it in a very generous way, though, as he kind of lays it out, because he says, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. 
And you know what's amazing is it really doesn't matter how, maybe, how many of you in here are very organized? Let me see your hands. Okay, I'm, I'm thinking who I want to help me out administration later on, okay? How many of you are fly by the seat of your pants kind of people? I, I, could, I could have pointed some of you out. I know, I know that's you, right? But here's what James is saying. He goes, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter if you're this incredibly organized person, if you're a fly-by-your-seat-the-pants person. The truth is, all of our tomorrows, all of our great plans, all of our things that we think we've got control of can be thwarted by things that are totally outside of our control. The simplest plan can be thwarted by things that are outside of our control. It was kind of ironic this week as I was writing this message. I was about three-quarters of the way into, into typing it all out, and that's, that's several hours of work. And all of a sudden, we had a little electrical blip, and my computer went, blip. And guess what didn't work? Autosave. It always works, but it didn't work that day. And so this is a twice-written sermon, twice-typed-out sermon. And I thought, God, how ironic is that? Thank you, because James says, I should, not, I should know that things can be thwarted outside of my control, like the announcements this morning that worked perfectly 10 minutes ago. So he's saying, we don't, hold, we don't know what well, we don't know. We don't know what tomorrow holds. But again, I think he's being generous because if we're honest, we really don't know what today holds. We really have no control over what today holds. I mean, I know what we have planned today. I know what I have planned today. You know, pretty much, it, it's, a, it's a routine of what, what Denise and I typically do on, on Sundays. A little change because it's a party. But typically, we're going to finish the service this morning. About 1130, we're going to all like, amen. You're going to pick up chairs. I'm going to go over and stand by the coffee and greet guests because it's safe over there. And after we've shook hands and some of you guys run for the fences and others hang out, um, we'll go and get us something to eat. Not sure what it's going to be, but I'm sure it'll be okay, right? And then typically, if it wasn't a party day, we're going to go home and we're going to see who the fastest one is that can fall asleep because we've been up since early this morning and uh, I believe in godly naps on Sunday afternoons no matter who's playing, right? That's why golf on TV is awesome. It's better than any sleeping pill you've ever taken. It just knocks you out, right? And so do the Panthers right now also. So we're kind of, kind of planning that, right? And then uh, my dog will about halfway into the nap come and lick my face and abruptly wake me up and I will hate her and love her at the same time, and then, and then maybe by the end of the day, we'll actually kind of settle in for the night. But the reality is, I don't know if that's going to happen. I'm not guaranteed I'll make it home. I'm not saying that as some kind of shock value, but reality of our lives is, is that every single one of our lives can be changed in an instant by a phone call, by a text, by, by, by a disease, by something that comes in our lives that we weren't expecting. And what James is saying, he say, look, in comparison to God, we need to recognize we don't know what we don't know. There are a lot of things that are outside of our control. But the second thing he brings out, and I think this is even more critical, is even if we did know, he says, honestly, we lack power. Even if we did know something was coming, even if we did know that there was something before us that, that maybe we, we, we would take our life in a spin away from where we think it ought to be, he says, honestly, you don't have the power to control that either. And he does it in this very beautiful metaphoric way when he says, what is your life? For you are a mist. You are a mist. Now, don't think fog. Don't think something that comes and hangs out a long time. He, he's given us the example of... Uh, this can makes me want to shake, and my dog runs, because my wife thinks whenever there's any sickness in the house, this is what we get, you know? And my dog immediately runs because, you know, it doesn't smell that good. But he says, that's pretty much life. Oh, communion is blessed. There you go. Sorry. <laughs> there we go. We'll hang it out to the right a little bit. Get the picture? Not a whole lot to that, is there? He says, in the face of eternity, 
That's us. Some of us are deodorized, some are not. It's just there, right? You know, it's just short, and it's not going to do a whole lot. He says, so if we see that we don't know a lot, and if we, even if we know a lot, we don't have power to do a lot about it, he says, then where's your pride? Where's this beating your chest like, hey, I am, I'm in control, I'm in charge, hear me roar. He's like, no, I'm ignorant, and I can't do anything about it, hear me roar. That's not much of a roar, but that's James's point in all this. He's saying if we're really going to be walking in godly wisdom and understanding that he is in control of our lives and we are going to follow him, then we've got to sit down and focus on the fact that we are not like God because God is wholly different than we are. God is wholly different than we are. Theologically, we use these great terms to describe our God. We say that he is omnipotent, and we all know that, or most know, that that means he is all-powerful, right? I always crack up how that uh, the world or Hollywood sometimes tries to give, like, God and Satan equal power. Have you ever noticed that in some of the movies, you know, like the big contrast between the demonic and the priest or whatever? I don't know what's up with the priest. They must not read the Bible because they're always afraid of all this. But the Bible says that when the demons even came into the presence of Jesus, they hit the ground. They cowered, and they said, please don't destroy us. At the end of the book, this is really cool, if you read in the book of Revelation about the end of all things before uh, the final return of Christ and we have the new heavens and the earth, we talked about that last year, in that battle of Armageddon, and the word says when all the armies of the world, when all the, all the men of the world gather to, to oppose God, Jesus shows up and says two words, and it's like vaporized time. He just says, I am. That's it. Because the power is in our God. The power is all his. The power is available to us only through him because our God is omnipotent. But he's not only omnipotent, he's omniscient. He knows everything. There, there's nothing that escapes our God. He knows every detail at every level of how all this life works out in a linear way. And he understands and knows exactly what you and I are going to walk in or walk through. So not only does he know ahead of time what you and I are going to face, and this brings me great comfort, but he has the power to do something about it. He knows where we're going to be tomorrow, and he has the power to do something about it. And that ought to encourage us, because so many of us think it's all on us. But it's not, because we serve a God who's all-powerful and all-knowing. I mean, and he's also omnipresent, and that's the one that always blows my mind. I really can't figure this one out, and I know some of you guys are really much more intelligent than I am and understand physics and all this, but here's the thing. How can this all-powerful, all-knowing God be everywhere all at once? But he is. He is able to be everywhere with all his power, with all his might, with all of his knowledge, present always wherever we may be. I mean, think about that. How many of you have ever been stretched too thin by the task that's in front of you? Anybody? I mean, you know, you, you kind of hit that point where you're like, man, I don't know. I thought I was equipped to handle this. It's kind of like you get a new promotion, you know, and you're like, oh, I can't wait. That means more money and all that. And then the first day you get in the job, you're like, holy cow, I don't know anything. And you're just blown away because you thought you were equipped and ready for this, and, and you're not. And that feeling is awful because you're like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? Can I tell you, God has never had that feeling. He, he did not wake up one day and kind of go, man, you know, the Middle East, I didn't see that coming. And I thought we had a pretty good plan working here, but I, I'm going to have to go back and really rethink this thing because it's a little beyond me. No, God is not that way. He is all-powerful, and he's as present in the outskirts of the universe as he is in this auditorium today. He's in the detail of your life, just as he is in the detail of a star that is being swallowed by a black hole. He is in every place at every time, and he brings all his power for us all at once. So if we're like, I don't know what today's going to hold, and I can't do much about it, James would say to us then, don't boast. 
Don't be prideful. Don't be arrogant enough to think that you're in control. Verse 16 says, as it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes, and all such boasting is evil. In fact, honestly, if we're sincere with ourselves, most of the time, we are lost in the weeds when it comes to this life. We, we can't see the forest because of the trees, and yet God does. He knows every detail, and the thing that makes it all work for us as believers is it's wonderful to have a powerful God. It's wonderful to have an all-knowing God. It's wonderful to have a, an ever-present God, but all of that would be awful except for one fact. God is good. He's good. You say, well, Pastor, how do we know he's good? How do we know he's good? There's a reason from the very first day of hope we put a cross in, in, in our place of being wherever we're at. Because the only way we know he's good is right there. It's a constant reminder that Jesus Christ gave his life for us. That no matter what pain we may find ourselves in, he did not come to condemn us. That cross is an objective evidence on repeat again and again and again and again that we can look at and say our God is good, he is powerful, he is with us, he knows everything, and we can trust him. We sing that song that's new to us, but yet it's kind of building in our repertoire. And it's, it, it, it says, when the night is holding on to me, God is holding on. Every time I hear that, I just get chills. Because I don't know if you've ever experienced a night where you don't know that God is there. It's a very painful place to be. But God is holding on. And the, re- the chorus that flows out of that is, he is good, good. Oh, and it just reminds us. It gets in us. It's kind of like that song we sang this morning that was written in the 1970s. Can anybody give me a witness today about Jesus there? Some, how many of you knew that song? Come on, help me out here. Oh, my goodness. Better than that I had expected. I'm up here in tears, not because of the song, but because I can picture my little mama on the organ every Sunday in the church. I grow up and play in that song because we would sing that song about every Sunday growing up because guess what? There is something about his name. But he's good. And that brings us all to that place where we either trust him or we don't. So James sets this contrast, and he says, okay, if God is good, and he's all these things, and we're not, then how do we know if we're building our life on a place of humility or a place of arrogance? Can I tell you, it's hard. It's kind of actually very slippery because, you know, it's like if I ask you, hey, Justin, what's God doing in your life, man? What's he really working in you? And Justin goes, well... You know, I think God is really working in me this deep sense of humility. And I'd be like, what? You're bragging about your humility? I mean, come on. That just, it, does, it doesn't work, right? It's very slippery to get a hold of. You know, it's, it's like, how do we pursue humility? Because maybe in the pursuit of humility, our pursuit of it is only because we want to be seen as humble. So someone would say we are a humble person. Well, that would be prideful, wouldn't it? So it's kind of hard to get a hold of humility versus pride. And in the same token, if you flip the other side of it, then how do you, how do you explain that, that, that pompous, blowhard, arrogant people never think they're arrogant, right? They didn't ever think they're arrogant. They just think they're good. I'm good at everything, so therefore I'm, it's okay to be bragging, right? But the truth of the matter is we're supposed to live in this humble side of the equation and doing so recognizing there's so little that we can control, but God is in control. So how do we see ourselves in that? How do we, how do we find ourselves in that mix? Because here's the truth. All of us are constantly doing this between humility and arrogance. All of us are constantly battling in our own spirit, in our own life. How do we see God? How do we follow God? Is it on me? Is it on him? How do I trust? Am I not trusting? We all battle that. So how do we see where we are? And there's three things I want to just share briefly with you this morning. And then we're going to come back into this text to focus on how we walk it out. I really think to understand where we're walking in, 
whether it's in pride or humility, the first thing, and it's in your notes, you're following along on, on you version, is we need to understand and acknowledge our own weaknesses. We need to understand and acknowledge our own weaknesses. Now, this is not some self-flagellation like, oh, I'm a worm, I deserve nothing. No, this is just being honest with ourselves about what we are not and honest with ourselves of what we are. And I think one of the best places in Scripture to see that was actually a word picture that Paul used to the church at Corinth. And in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he talked about the body of Christ. And he gave this picture so people to understand how the body of Christ works. I'll read it, verse 14 going forward. He says, even so, the body is not made of... of the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I'm not the hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? And if the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. What's Paul's point here? What he's saying is, in very clear terms to me, not anyone is everything. Not anyone is everything. You're not all that. No one has it all together. It means that every one of us has specific strengths and specific weaknesses. I mean, some of you this morning, you may be very much identifying like, yeah, I'm an eye, and others are like, I'm an ear, and I'm a foot, and others of you are like, I don't know what I am, but we're all part of the body of Christ. And the reality is, all of us, and this is where pride breaks down, all of us are going to need some help sometimes. And we just might be sitting close to the very one that God says is going to help us. And that's humbling. All of us are going to need some help sometimes, because we're not all that. That's why it's so important, and we, we teach it, we preach it, we encourage it at hope. That's why it's so important to belong in the church and not just go to church. Because if we don't belong, then we're not relying on each other, we're not helping each other out. If we never belong, we simply go, then we're never going to become fully equipped. We're never going to become these, these quick, built-by-God, missional, God-glorifying vessels that God created you and I to be if all we do is show up. We need to belong. Because here's where pride and arrogance and humility come in. You see, there's going to be times that I need you to flank my weaknesses. For me to be what God's made me to be. There's other times you're going to need me to flank your weaknesses and for you to be what God made you to be. But the reality is when we refuse to enter in, when we refuse to become part of the body, we refuse to become a part, not only do you weaken yourself, but you weaken us as well. Because now we're not whole. I think it's a cruel thing of God to put us in that way that we actually need each other because our human flesh and our our way of being is so much like I don't need anybody I'm good I'm fine don't worry about me but you see acknowledging our weaknesses really ought to set us free it really ought to be a moment of aha praise God because what it means is I don't have to be good at everything and I don't have to do everything there are things that others do better than I do. There's things that, that I may do better than others. We need to find our lane and walk in that lane because when we do so, we're letting people walk out. They're designed by God, and God is receiving glory in us and through us. You say, okay, I can get how humility, okay, we need each other, but what about pride? How do we really see pride in that? I, I think really simply in two ways. The first is you may be sitting here this morning, and your mind's going like, weaknesses? Do I have weaknesses? Honey, do I have weaknesses? 
Kids, do I have weaknesses? And they're all looking at you like, we're not saying a word. Let pastor talk to you. Well, that's probably your first sign of pride. You know, it's kind of like the, the person that shows up in church. Hey, pastor, what do you need me to do? Man, I can preach. I can sing. I can lead a class. I can help the kids. I can build a building. I can do everything. You're, I'm the best thing you've ever known. And you're like, yeah, <laughs> we're going to have fun together, right? But that's, that's, that's kind of that pride side of it. But can I tell you, there's a flip side to pride that I think is more prevalent in the body of Christ. And it's the one that says, you know, I'm really not good at anything. I, in fact, I'm pretty lame. I, I just don't have anything to offer. Don't expect anything from me. Well, look, I'm not going to deny your lameness, okay? Because that, that maybe there are things that some people are not as talented as others. But can I tell you, the Bible is very clear that one of the things God loves getting the glory the most out of is taking things that are lame and bringing greatness to his name by working through those things so the world may see his goodness. And when we don't allow ourselves to be put in that place where we are challenged to walk in a way that says, I'm going to trust God to use what he's put inside of me, we are robbing the world of seeing God's glory because of him working through us. I mean, think about it for just a moment. What biblical characters today, for, besides Jesus, what biblical characters would we put in leadership at Hope Church? Think about that. Can you imagine the meeting with me and Apostle Paul? So, Paul, uh, you know on that background check thing, um, man, uh, what's up with the 150 people you murdered? Uh, you still got a little anger problem there? You know, have you gotten to overcome that? Uh, no? Okay, good. You can work with our kids, right? You know, so Dave, Dave, hey, Dave, you want to be our worship leader. I see you wrote the Psalms, but man, you know, you kind of got a woman problem. You know, you kind of slept around a little bit, David. I don't know. You still got a problem with that? It's still, really? Okay, sorry, down the road. No. God has taken pleasure to use the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. The Bible is filled with broken, messy people, and God enters into their space, and he makes much of his name through them. So the struggle between pride and arrogance, arrogance is the brother who thinks he has no weakness, and arrogance is the brother who thinks that there is nothing good in him. And there's nothing he can offer. So he discounts God's glory. So the first thing we have to do is really be aware of our weaknesses and our strengths. We have classes to help you in some of that. That's why we do 301 and we teach through that. Because we want you to be aware of how God wired you. But I think there's a second piece that I think is probably a little more difficult because it's a little more intangible. It's a little more mystical. And that is, if we're going to get a hold of our foundation, whether it's humility or arrogance, not only do we need to know our weaknesses, but I think we need to stay curious I really believe that's one of the keys to this, is we need to stay curious in our understanding of who God is, how things work, and what he's doing around us. You see, curiosity is really this playful acknowledgement that we don't know. We don't know everything. But it's amazing to ponder and think and learn about the things we don't know. In fact, I believe curiosity by itself is a medicine against pride. I, I, love, I love what David said in Psalm 8, verse 3. He said, when I consider your heavens... I think one of the best things we can do sometimes is just slow down enough to stop and look up. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, then what is mankind that you are mindful of them and human beings that you care for them? So here's David looking up. This man that God has said he's a man at my own heart, that God has laid, laid on him the kingship, the rulership, that God has entrusted so much whose psalms inspire us today to worship our God. And he looks up to heaven and he says, God, why do you even care about us? 
Why, why, do you, why do you even acknowledge us? I'm so blown away with your handiwork, God. Where do I fit in? And that curiosity leads him to seek God and go after God and, and, and want God even more. And it's that same thing in us that needs to develop that we are constantly aware that there's so much more to the love of our Father we've not experienced yet. And there's so much more to this creation that we haven't addressed or even acknowledged or even desired. That's why God puts us together. Because sometimes we, we need that, that understanding that we're not all the same to make us stop and be curious about, God, how does all this work? And God, why? Why did you do this in me, God? Because that'll change how I see life. But it keeps me humble to say, God, I'm just a part of what you're doing. And you've called it beautiful, God, even when I see it as messy. But if we lack curiosity, and I think that's one of the diseases of, our, of aging is we stop being curious because this world says that you can Google anything, so why be curious, right? We've got to learn to say be curious because if we're not curious, we lose the wonder in our ability to follow God. And that leads to the third thing I think helps us out with this foundation. And this is one that James hits again and again and again. And that is that we need to learn to acknowledge others and what they provide and how they help and how they serve. Hebrews 10 verse 24 says, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. Here's what James would say to us. We need to be experts. We need to be experts not on how people fall short. We need to be experts on how and where they excel. And we need to be constantly on the look to say, you know what, I want to encourage them because, man, they are awesome. I want to encourage them on how they greet. I want to encourage them on how they lead. I want to encourage them on how they care. I want to encourage them every way I can. Because when you do that, what we're saying is God is fulfilling his purpose in every one of us. We tried to structure hopes, leadership on, on that very principle saying none of us are all that. So we need each other. I met last night with a, with a stewardship team. They know a whole lot more about finance and money than I do, and it's, it's, it's good just to have their gifts being used. We met with the elder team earlier in the week, and they are, they are my spiritual covering, and they, they keep me in check. And if Mike's head gets big, they poke it and pop it because their responsibility is to pray and to cover me. It's why we have leadership in every area that are based on teams because, again, nobody is all that. I think we just all should say amen right now. It would be like releasing freedom in all of our lives, okay? Oh, come on. You can do it. You're like, well, then I'd be like false humility there. We're not all that, but God is. God is good to us. So if this is true, so if this is the way of thinking, if this is the foundation, how do we live it out, okay? So we're going to wrap it up with this. So how do we, how do we walk it out if we're going to walk on the foundation of humility versus the foundation of arrogance? And what James does is he, he gives us this picture and he's saying, look, if you're going to make plans, if you're going to say, I've got a control of my life, then you've got to realize you, you don't know everything and you're, you're not in control of everything. He says, but you ought to say, if the Lord wills. So the question really is, is James saying, don't make any plans? Or is he saying, if you do make any plans, just always make sure you've got that little catchphrase at the end like, hey, we're going to go out to lunch afterwards, if God wills. Hey, I'm going to go get my shoes out of the closet, if God wills. Hey, we're going to have breakfast in the morning, if God No, that would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? But I have a friend that does that, drives me nuts. Hey, we're having coffee tomorrow, if God wills. I'm going to be there, I'm going to buy coffee, it's okay, you know. But everything's, if no, 
God did not create us to be parents. He created us to be sons and daughters of God, created in his image, and we have brains that think and hearts that respond. And because of that, it's not an issue of putting a catchphrase on the end of our plans. It's not a matter of being simple to make plans because the Proverbs are full of wisdom about making plans. It is saying this. If you're a business person or business, what you're doing is that you have plans to go to Chicago or China or wherever and do some business, it's not sinful for you to have that on your calendar. It's not simple to make plans. That's not what James is saying. Neither is he saying that every time you, you plan a future event, you write there on the calendar, Lord willing. So what he's saying is that since human plans, and even our, our existence in the world is somewhat insignificant and that we disappear quite quickly compared to eternity, he's saying we ought to take into consideration in every plan the larger matters. The larger matters of God's will, of God's plan, of God's eternal purpose in us. And when we do that, then we're submitting to his will and we're saying, God, what did you shape me to be? How did you make me to be God? And then what does that line out in my plans for this life? So his point is that in our future plans, he says, which are right and good, they should be informed by, driven by, fueled by the greater reality of eternity. Because this life is like this big compared to the eternity that we can't even measure. And yet we think this life is everything. So James is saying, stop and think. What's driving your business? What's driving your plans? What's driving your family? What's driving your vacation? He gets down to that simple, crazy kind of thought. Because he says, if there is a sovereign king of glory who has a mission who created us to be part of that mission, then he has called us to walk it out by understanding what drives us, what leads us, and what guides and informs our decisions. Because what James is arguing is this. He says, your faith life, is not some compartmentalized part of your being that is separate from everything else. We don't have a Sunday God. Can I get a witness, right? He says, you don't have a home life, a married life, a business life, a, a hobby life, and oh, by the way, you have a spiritual life that happens once a week on Sundays. But he said, no, it's all integrated so that everything we do and all that we consider will set our minds and hearts toward what is God's will in the circumstance. I, I love the, the phrasing that Paul used when he wrote to the church at Coloss. And in Colossians 3, he says, since then, you've been raised with Christ. In other words, since you're a Christian, set your hearts on things above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Verse 4, I love this. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So here's James. He says, all your plans, all your dreams, all the things you want to put on the calendar. He says, the fuel, the weight, the drive of all those things should be found in the fact that Christ is your life. So if we plan a vacation, just give you a very practical explanation. That, that vacation is not so much just about rest, okay? But it's also about the fact that probably the number one discipleship application God has asked to have in our lives is our family. And there ought to be that purpose of saying, I'm also getting away with those I love. Not getting away from those you love, getting away with those you love. And I'm going to rest, but I'm also going to invest because my life is found in Christ. I'm going to rest, but I'm also going to invest because it brings glory and honor to my God. And when we look at that, it, it's every aspect of our lives. It's how we handle our finances. It's how we, how we love our spouses or our friends. It's, it's, it's how we spend our time and our stewardship, our influence. It's not, it's not saying, God, I'm going to give you this little bit. I'm going to give you everything. 
Because when we give God just a little bit, what we're saying is kind of like a, a husband saying to his wife, it's like, oh, no, no, this is not date night. Leave, no, go away. No. We have date night where we show affection to each other and we love each other. Once, no, go away. It's not date night. No. That'd be ludicrous. That's what James is trying to get to. He says, it's Christ your life. If Christ is your life, then everything in your life that you plan is for his glory with his influence. Can I tell you, it's okay to plan for retirement. Can I get an amen? I'm working on my 401k because it's a lot closer than it used to be. It's telling you. It's kind of scary. Some of y'all are nodding. Some of you are like, what? Yeah, it gets there, okay? Because here's a, here's a news flash. I'm not going to always be the pastor of Hope Church. Ta-da! Because you don't want 80 and 90-year-old Mike getting up here on the stage somehow and like trying to put a coherent thought together, okay? I'm already praying. God, you know who you're going to raise up someday. And I hope it's one of our sons or daughters that have been raised up, discipled in this body of Christ. We put our hands and we see what God is doing through their lives. We send them away for a season so they can make all their mistakes in another church. And then we bring them back when they finally got some wisdom. And then we say, okay, now it's time for Mike to step out of the way and they can step in. And you know what I'll do in my retirement? I will sit on that front row and I will say amen to good preaching and teaching and come under the submission of their authority. And then I will spend my time investing in other young ministers and ministries because that's what God wired me to do and I don't have to say God willing on the end of that thought because he's already shown that he's willing are, are you getting the picture here are, are you getting the understanding because it's 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 so just simple that if we're not careful we miss the whole point of what he's saying so James wraps it up with this last statement and I wish he hadn't put it in there because really it's hard and that's in verse 17 will you agree this is hard he said if if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it it's sin for them thank you james wow you just blew my whole week because you read that and you're like whoa whoa wait a minute i know how my week went and there are plenty of good things i know to do i did not do there are plenty of things that i know better i didn't follow who can stand under that right who, who can stand under that last statement? Are we doing the good we know we ought to do? Are we doing the things we, are we just focused more on what we're doing, not what we shouldn't do? No, he said, are you doing the right things? I really think it comes to this. What James is saying is, look, when you are aware there are things that are right for you to do, do them. Not just out of duty, but do them because your understanding is in doing them, you're honoring the one who is all that, who is everywhere, who is all-knowing, all-powerful, but is also good. Early in our ministry, I hadn't quite figured out yet that it's not good for a pastor to have arguments with people, but in my pride, I would have arguments over the Bible because I thought I was all that. And one Wednesday night, I had a man challenge me because we'd been teaching through as early in the year. We were teaching about stewardship and all those things. And we were talking about giving and tithing and all this. And he comes in loaded for bear. And on Wednesday night, takes the Bible, shakes in my face and says, I don't give to the church because the Bible says I'm going to take care of my family. If I don't take care of my family, I'm worse than an infidel. Aren't you glad you're not a pastor? And I said, you know, you're right. It does. 
but you're not doing what is good to do, which is being generous, what you're saying to God is, God, I don't need your help, nor do I want your help in taking care of my family. And oh, by the way, you're the one that's all powerful everywhere and has all the resources, and you are good. So God, I'm going to do it on my own. God bless you. Amen. I'm out. We weren't really friends after that, but it was, uh, it was very poignant to go, we can't cherry pick God's goodness. It all comes together. It all flows together because God is good. And so what James is saying is he's saying to us, look, <laughs> none of you are all that. You're not going to be able to do all that. That's when we come together as a family and we turn our eyes and we gaze on the mercy of our God and we look to the cross and we say, God, we trust you because you are good. Because the reality is that the book of James without the cross is a crushing book. Who can stand under it? But it's also a blessing to us because when we read it and we're challenged by it, what it is doing, it is revealing to us our need of God's grace. And God said he gives us grace with overflowing. We said it last week. Humility is not thinking lowly of ourselves, but accurately about ourselves. And when we are accurate about ourselves and our own nature, we realize we are not equipped to handle all the things God has asked of us to do, but yet he has given us his Holy Spirit who is able to take over, who is able to empower, who is able to overwhelm to the point that the things that God has asked us to do flow because of him, not because of us. I wrote this in my, in my notes. We're going to close with this thought. Maybe, maybe a revelation for some of you this morning. Jesus knew who he was purchasing with his own blood on the cross. And he doesn't suffer buyer's remorse. You see, he knows, listen, he knows it is scary to be us. Remember, he walked as a man on this earth. He grew up as a teenager. He was a toddler. He came and experienced all that we experienced. And he knows that it is scary to be us. And he knows how we stumble. He knows how we fail. He knows that we don't even know what's coming later today. And he knows that we understand our lives are but a vapor. So he made a way. He made a way. And that way is trusting him. That way is putting our lives in his hands. That way is taking our decisions and saying, God, we are found in Christ. How does that work into my decision? God, how does that work into my plans? Because you see, there will be a day. It's going to come where we no longer have to wrestle about pride and humility. There's going to come a day when no longer does pride creep in. But here's, here's the news. It's not today. So we need Christ. We need Christ. All through this teaching, I've been sharing a simple phrase. On this earth, it's about progress, not perfection. And we need to keep that in mind. On this earth, it's not perfection because none of us are perfect. We are progressing. We're challenging. We need each other. And when we do that together, our lives are found in Him. Guess what? He gets all.